Hi guys, welcome back to the Earthy Delights podcast. Today we have a very interesting guest um, here to talk. And uh, David, it runs uh, Unlimited Sciences, a psychedelic research nonprofit using data to understand how psychedelic therapy can be offered with harm-free positive outcomes. Um, in 2019, he served as a campaign lead in the Denver Psilocybin Initiative, helping Denver become the first US city to reform um, psilocybin policy. David graduated from a graduated summa cum laude in architecture as it happens from cambridge university and built a non-profit to help kenyan children access schooling uh brought up in papua new guinea portugal and scotland um yeah you heard that right he began his career in new york with daniel um Lieberskind working on ground um zero master plan david great to have you here thanks so much for your time thanks for having me on um, just to start very off, right off um, from the very start, uh, you know, your intro there, you kind of seem like a, a very worldly man. You've had a lot of experience. How did it, how did you come by, you know, Scotland, Papua New Guinea, Portugal, and then end up kind of in the architecture, obviously in, in Cambridge, and then end up in the psilocybin psychedelic world? How did that happen? I definitely had adventurers for parents. They were no stranger to making bold decisions and exploring the world. And even before they met each other, they had individually moved around quite a bit. My dad's Irish. My mom was born in Kenya. So I'm, I think, fourth generation Kenyan. Um, and eventually, through a couple of business moves for my dad and then my mom bringing me to Scotland, uh, she also brought me to Kenya when I was in my teens. And then I was back in England for uni, as you said, and mm -hmm. the opportunity to to start a career in New York, I think, is every young European's dream, or at least many of us. And so I took up that that offer uh, without a heartbeat, and and started as an architect. But you know, I realized one thing New York will do for you is expose you to all the options that are available. It's just such an exciting place; it moves at a million miles an hour, and the opportunities are endless. And I had my eyes open that. You know, we don't just have to choose to be an architect or an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. There are all these new ways of creating value in the world and working with interesting people. And so that's where I dipped my toe in entrepreneurship. I started as a uh, organize, organizing events, actually, on behavioral economics and decision-making psychology, which was interesting. And then all right. realized the value and power of technology. So... I translated my architectural training into user experience and UI design for apps and websites and, and creating online experiences that could help people adopt new behaviors or somehow live better lives. And one thing after another, that led me to an opportunity to build something special in the cannabis industry. And I was in that space for about four years right at the beginning, 2014, when the first dispensaries were opening their doors. Mm. And I built a, a tech company, happy to share more about, and um, that became quite successful. And just in the last couple of years, I was able to transition to this psychedelic, psychedelic space, which I personally have a much greater level of passion and commitment to. Mm. And and you mentioned um, now that you're kind of in that psychedelic space with, it's Maya, is that correct? The company, Maya Health? Maya Health is my company, and I also direct a nonprofit research group called Unlimited Sciences. Okay, busy man then. Um, what What is the research that you're carrying out exactly? Right, so with Unlimited Sciences, the goal started as exploring how people can use psychedelics safely and effectively because as we all know, and I'm sure much of your audience knows, you know, there are so many different ways to take psychedelics and, and they're commonly known as party drugs. And mm. there are um, amazing pieces of research pointing to the mental health benefits. And so now we have therapy and ceremony. Um, and these are things that have existed for centuries, if not millennia with psychedelics, but in terms of our cultural awareness, they're just emerging again now. And in recognizing that the academic researchers are focusing on studying things like okay, if we take somebody that has experienced a trauma and they have PTSD, and then mm -hmm. we give them a drug like MDMA in a therapeutic controlled environment, then does that intervention help reduce their symptoms and increase their quality of life? 
So those those are the kind of questions that academics have to ask. Yeah. The thing is that we, I think many of us are predicting that the answers are yes to a lot of those questions and that these psychedelics are going to start to enter widespread mental health care. And so this is where the problem emerges because most people are trained to think of drugs in the pharmaceutical space or, or, or in terms of medical drugs as a prescription that you get given pills that you take you know, twice a day for, for, for however long you need to. And then hopefully your symptoms are relieved. And it's just a different story with psychedelics because the drug itself is talked about as being maybe 30% or some small fraction of the overall important experience, the narrative that your mind goes through and the journey that you go through over the course of several hours with some drugs over the course of several weeks in terms of the whole um, therapeutic protocol. That's where the magic is in my belief. And I think a lot of people agree. And so what we're studying to answer your question is mm. how do you create those experiences so that they're as meaningful and powerful as well as safe as possible, Con looking at everything from does it make a difference if you're with a trained guide or does it make a difference if you're with your friends? Does it make a difference if you're in nature versus at home alone? Does it make a difference if you've eaten a big meal before or if you're hydrated or if you have a childhood experience or a cultural, maybe religious belief system? Like All of these things are hypothesized to impact the psychedelic journey and therefore the outcomes. And so at Unlimited Sciences, we're researching much of those kind of elements and we're in a collaboration with Johns Hopkins University and with Roland Griffiths there, who's a fairly famous psychedelic scientist and yeah. really enjoying the collaboration with him to, to help explore some of those questions. Brilliant. Uh, you know, you briefly touched on, on, you know, the kind of difference between psychedelic drugs and, you know, your normal um, prescription kind of drugs that we're used to getting from the pharmacy or the doctor. Are you worried that big pharmaceutical companies may put roadblocks in the way due to financial greed? You know, normally they want to produce drugs that are expensive and need to be taken daily. Um it's been a very successful business model for them in the past. However, psychedelic drugs are normally, you know, fairly cheap and they don't at least my understanding is they don't require constant use. Could this actually be their downfall? Fantastic question. Um, what you're asking there is, is a highly relevant and heated debate that's going on in the psychedelic professional space right now. And um, personally, I see both sides uh, of the argument, and I, I really understand that there are different perspectives here. People who are coming from different backgrounds are naturally going to think of this problem in the same in, in different ways and so you know the reason this is so debated maybe I'll, I'll just expand on what you asked mm -hmm. to, to help give some color to that yeah. scenario is that there's an argument against pharma coming into the space because many people see psychedelics as naturally occurring they are coming from plants or fungi um, they should be in many people's eyes a natural right because they grow in the ground and so why not just trade them like groceries you know like vegetables yeah. at the store um, which can grow in the ground and anyone can decide to produce and have a business to sell them and so for that reason it seems counter to have big companies like the pharma producers patent certain molecules and production methods and then what they call as commodifying um you know something that many people as see as being natural um so that's a very fair argument i completely agree with that you know the on the other side of the coin we've got the argument for pharma which is that most people don't actually know where to find psychoactive drugs if you <laughs> if you were to ask you know everyone in your town where they could find acid or mushrooms or mdma most people actually wouldn't know and and you know perhaps with younger generations having more access through social communities and whatnot there's a difference in generational access but there's mm. definitely a difference in the um access so for lower income for example lower income demographics deserve just the same right to have access to these drugs and so the theory here is by ph pharmaceutical companies is that there needs to be a model where therapists are guiding the experience and we're able to control the consistency and the quality of these drugs and have them be administered in a way that's you know very guardrailed for wrong handling or misconduct and that kind of thing 
I think I agree with that as well. And so insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies are coming in to say, well, if we're going to need to create all this consistency, we need to fund that somehow and we need to produce that that costs tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And so there needs to be the pharma model for that to happen. And then, you know, one thing to mention here is that we've just recently had a really relevant case study happen in for all of us that we need to pay attention to, and that's the cannabis industry. And I witnessed this firsthand in just the space of four or five years, cannabis going from highly stigmatized, you know, just as hard to find as magic mushrooms in many cases. Um, And then over the course of those five years, we've seen thousands and thousands of product companies making marijuana infused products and selling them over the counter at dispensaries. And unfortunately, what's also happened is such economic interests you know people are are mm. it seems it seems um naturally programmed when new industries emerge to start gearing around making more money and so we've seen edibles with cannabis with a thousand milligrams which is just a ridiculous dose for most people and yeah. um and yet those products come to market and the stakes are much much higher with psychedelics if you see ibogaine or acid products coming to market with over the recommended dose or over kind of like average doses call it then um there would potentially be major harmful effects on society so that goes back to if we have the grocery store model and everyone's just picking and choosing whatever psychedelics they want from whichever vendor they want then does it become a chaotic and very potentially dangerous space and and that's why the pharma companies are arguing that that's the case and they're coming actually to the rescue to help lower income uh. individuals access these drugs safely Right, they're the knights in shining armor, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) So, Uh, like I said, there are both sides to the coin. Of course, of course. Um, For people who maybe aren't aware, what is the site, what are the recent studies showing in terms of, at least let's just talk about for psilocybin for now. What are the recent studies showing in terms of psilocybin and the effect it can have on people who suffer with mental health problems? Yeah, great. There's so many studies going on. It's it's exploded. And the context there is that there were a lot of studies happening in the 60s and they were halted. I won't go in. It's quite a long story to go into yeah, why that yeah. happened and the political and economic motives there. A great book to read on that is called Chasing the Scream. Um, if anyone's okay. interested in some you, of the- Johan Yari. Pardon me? Johan Yari. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah glad yeah. you're familiar. Yes. Yeah. Um, he's really smart. I saw him speak once and, and he's- very well read and educated about the political and economic motives behind mm. why a lot of these drugs were made illegal. So I recommend that one. But um, you know, now there's been this revival. Uh, a lot of it was led by people like Roland Griffiths and Robin Carhart Harris, who's over there in the UK. And the studies are uh, impossible to to cite them all, but some and of course. Top, I think uh, stats are, for example, with cigarette addicts, so people who are. Um, smoking daily, smoking large amounts were brought in and just with um, a short period, I don't know if it was one or uh, or several psilocybin mushroom interventions, those people were then tracked and and six months later, they were measured for their smoking uh, habits and 80% of them had stopped smoking completely even six or more months after the intervention took place. And so that's unlike most um, solutions that we find on the on the chem, uh, the the pharmacy shelves like patches or um, any other kind of nicotine replacement is that you end up just kind of addicted to that thing or or taking it for a long time in many cases and so that's the power of psychedelics that are being explored now can we have just a few very well designed experiences that maybe span over a few weeks or a couple of months and then leave somebody better off than when they entered and that has lasting effects six months and beyond and the same thing for depression and anxiety actually 80 percent of sufferers showed decreased symptoms and that was from a johns hopkins study um you know there's also this stat that over two-thirds of people rate the experience in the top five most meaningful experiences and and a very high proportion around 80 percent as well Incre- uh, report increased wellness, life satisfaction. You know, there are a lot of the softer elements to this that might for now be harder to measure. Um, but when people are going through these experiences and then leaving, I mean, I, I've just yesterday heard of a person going through a guided, might have been a ketamine experience, but very well you know, orchestrated with a therapist and so forth. And the person um, had been 
basically homeless, completely addicted, and uh, had estranged from their family, and very much in a in a position of struggle. They had went through this multi-week protocol, and then on the other end, just six months later, had reconnected with the family, completely uh, jumped all or left behind all addictions, and was actually running, it was either a race or doing a cycling um, uh, sort of challenge or something like that and had raised a million dollars for charity. Uh, oh yeah, that was right. He climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and raised a million dollars wow. for his charity. And so that's an anecdote, but there are thousands of anecdotes like that. And so I think it's worth mentioning that even beyond what can be captured in a scientific study, um, once you start to to hear people's stories, it's pretty amazing what people are experiencing. And, and um, I think uh, if we can even take inspiration from that, then that's a great starting point for the conversation to shift around psychedelics. For sure. Um, yeah, fascinating, really. I, I've, I've been reading it so many of these reports, and it really is, it seems there's no end to, to the potential of these drugs. Uh, it, in the interest of fairness, um, I kind of, I have to ask, what are the risks um, of psychedelic drugs that we should be aware of? I mean, you mentioned that you know um research was you know started off um and in the 50s and then it kind of got halted in the 60s and 70s and a lot of that was to do with the fact that you know there were cases of people apparently going insane after taking too many lsd trips and so on and so forth and i think that stigma is still very much attached is there anything that we should be aware of um as consumers in regards to psychedelic drugs definitely First thing to be aware of is that most of the stories around people going insane or having psychotic breaks are false, <laughs> and, and there's documentation around that. So just you know, we all have a sort of a you know uh, an uncle that <laughs> likes to yeah. Cite some of that. What about this? And you know, it's interesting. There there were so many slur campaigns and um, just factually inaccurate, if not misleading, campaigns throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s on um, why to avoid drugs. And so many people I work with, including myself, actually grew up with that context. I mean, I was told drugs were bad. I didn't try my first drug until I was 27 um, and really had the same perspective that anyone who uses them must be a default, uh, a defect, I should say. And so that's obviously not the case now that we've learned more and opened our eyes a bit. That said, it's really worth paying attention to so many things when when choosing whether to experiment with a psychedelic. And so there are no known lethal doses for things like psilocybin. Um, mm -hmm. It's very important to know that baselines, like if somebody has an uh, a family member ab above them in the gene tree with any form of schizophrenia, or mental health condition like that, then definitely want to be more cautious and if anything, asking for advice of a trusted expert. And, before, and I can circle back to where to find trusted experts, but circling back to, um, to or getting advice on that kind of thing mm. before experimenting for yourself, because like these are very, very serious journeys. And it's in a way, you know, I completely understand and I, I respect the celebration of taking a drug, altering our sense of consciousness, being with friends at a party, listening to music. It can be a really powerful mystical experience to be at a party taking yeah. a drug. And so I don't agree with any negative connotation with the term party drug. Um, but there's a party and then there's a party and then there's a party, right? <laughs> yeah. I grew up mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Scotland. I've been to some pretty rough parties. <laughs> yeah. And you want to be you want to be aware of which what your setting is. And um and with that in mind, Asking yourself the question, I mean, you could almost make a check, you should make a checklist before taking a psychedelic, right? Checking in with yourself for a while. Okay, where is my mind right now? Did I just break up with my girlfriend or boyfriend or, or you know, did I just get some bad news from my school or my job? You know, really checking in on those kind of things because it's now pretty well documented that if you have had some reason for being in a state of anxiety or a worry, then taking a psychedelic in an environment like a party or somewhere that's not with a trained guide is somewhat likely to lead you into really scary places. And um, while those can be powerful as well, it's not always safe. And I've been in some of those unsafe 
experiences myself, having not taken good care. I mean, one example, just to, to put my own story on the line here, and I'm not trying to tell anyone else anything that I'm not telling myself, is mm. um, you know, having uh, had a, a very difficult breakup about five years ago, I went into an LSD trip that was at Burning Man, and it was not you know with a guide. It was not in a therapeutic context, and I didn't realize that it was the first LSD trip I was taking without my girlfriend at the time, my ex-girlfriend, um, mm. you know, so therefore I didn't have my trip buddy. And it, it was a very, very, very challenging and potentially dangerous five hour long <laughs> harrowing experience that harrowing experience that taught me in that day how powerful and important the trip buddy concept is. And so I learned that lesson firsthand. And then I took that um, inspiration to go and train with a group called Zendo, which is a nonprofit group that sets up uh, safe spaces at different festivals. And they do training so that people like me could learn and become um, certified to be able to hold safe space for anyone else who's having a challenging psychedelic journey. So I recommend right. looking up Zendo and learning from them how they create the safest possible environments for people who are having those challenging trips. Um, so that's that's mindset. You want to take care of your setting, who you're with. Are you with just you know three really, really close friends that you trust and, and have an amazing relationship with? Or are there a couple of people that you're not so sure of and, and could potentially shift your energy halfway through the trip when you're at a really pivotal moment psychologically? Um, taking care of interruptions. I know of somebody who is in a very profound 5-MeO-DMT experience. That's the strongest psychedelic known to mankind. And midway through, the door was opened and, and there were um, there were police cars all gathered outside because the neighbor had been in some kind of in, <laughs> some kind of um, of issue. And so you really want to take oh, care that you're not, you know, you're not you're not putting yourself in unnecessary um, environments that are just going to damage the the peace and the potential, the positive potential of the trip. Um, and so obviously then the drug itself, maintaining um, quality, there are now plenty of test kits. There's a group called Dance Safe, which sets up at different festivals and will test drugs for free to make sure you've got pure quality and you're not taking something that your body won't like. Um, and obviously dosing as well. And that's where there are plenty of resources online to check with dosing. So I've talked more about what to what to put in place to prepare mm. well, as opposed to all the dangers to watch out for, because the, I think that our minds are very powerful and they can take us to dangerous places without right. a drug. Um, the drug just accentuates that. And so if you're taking care of these things in your life in general and being a person that respects your own experience of life and your boundaries and the way that you're going through um, all the different, you know, wonderful and challenging moments that we all face in life, then I think the mind is strong enough to get through any drug experience, no matter if you overdose, no matter if, you, um, if you're in the wrong setting, but at the same time, take care around these things and, and you'll be set up for success. Yeah, I mean, I I 100% echo those thoughts. I, I, the more and more I listen to experts who talk on this subject, the more I kind of get the hear the idea of there's no such thing as a bad drug, um, an inherently bad drug or an, or a bad compound. It's the way the way that humans use it is what makes it bad or good. Um, and so, yeah, sp speaking from my own experience, yeah, you know, going to university in Leeds, I've tried almost every party drug there is. Sorry, mum, at least once and. I've I've had good experiences on them and bad experiences on them, but I knew when to which ones to drop and which ones I would you know use in the right space and and so yeah I would th that's that's for sure something important and and even even at university was echoed oh man don't have a bad trip don't have a trip if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're feeling nervous or if you've got the dissertation coming in you're a bit anxious um, which kind of brings me on to um, that it's kind of come more into the culture now where people are kind of self-medicating um and a lot of people especially in the united states are microdosing right um i'm sure you've you've heard about that what what are your thoughts on microdosing you know you, you hear gurus in silicon valley and business uh, moguls are using it to become more creative um, what what are your thoughts on 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 microdosing well the jury is out i hear in terms of the research I might be mm -hmm. slightly out, outdated on that, but I, I believe that there still needs to be more conclusive research. And so as somebody who is running both a business and a nonprofit where everything we do is around looking at the data before forming opinions, 
I need to sort of state that I think that there's the cultural recognition of this phenomenon of microdosing, partly because it's an exciting thing for culture to talk about. And yeah. so I'm willing to believe that there's a part truth and a part either placebo or just cultural sort of subconscious excitement around it. That said, mm. I microdose. I microdose on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. I have a very, very high quality um, grow that is um, combined both uh, two, two species of psilocybin mushrooms ground up with lion's mane as a separate uh, separate pill and with yeah. both flush and non-flush niacin. And the um, experience is completely not noticeable. Uh, aside from the fact that I'm doing quite a lot and I'm you know, running two organizations and I have teams and I have a lot going on. Plus I have right. a wonderful fiance and I'm about to have a baby. And so there's all of the congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I, I just have a lot going on in life and, and I don't feel overwhelmed really at any point. And that's something I've noticed as being quite different than before I started microdosing where even when I had less going on, I would often feel that sense of overwhelm, uh, you know, a bit of pressure about my calendar and, and task list and that kind of thing. And now it just feels mm -hmm. easy and in flow. So I really valued that. And um, I do have many other friends who have experimented with microdosing to help relieve their anxiety or depression. And that's been successful in some of those cases for them. So I've, I've, I think it's very promising. I think that it's unlikely to do any harm. So just like probably most of the pills that you can buy on the supplement shelves in a pharmacy or at the supermarket, unlikely to do any harm. The jury is out on whether it actively does something positive or whether part of that is made by our mind. And to be honest, my opinion around um, placebos is that if they work, then even if it's a placebo, it's just as, as valuable and, and every bit is worth uh, implementing into, into the routines. Mm. And yeah, and I mean, I think I, I, from what I've read, a lot of people have said, echoed some, what you've just said. And I think kind of the, the most difficult thing about it, especially, I mean, obviously every country is different, right? But the, the hardest thing is kind of sourcing those, um, you know, quote unquote magic mushrooms, because unfortunately in many countries, um, they're still illegal, illegal or really hard to get a hold of. So trying to get enough to microdose for a month or whatever can be quite a problem of someone who maybe has no experience in getting drugs in, in the illegal market can be quite a scary and daunting thing to do as well. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, what, you know, we always hear about a trip. People always talk about how they had these life altering experiences, but almost, I mean, I've had them. Um, you know, I told my parents that I was going to Amsterdam to see the Van Gogh museum, which is a complete lie, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, it's so hard to explain what what you see or what you've experienced it's almost impossible i find um and i think that's kind of a common theme with most people who have been on on a psilocybin uh, or psychedelic trips what what is the effect that a psilocybin has on the brain when you're having a trip like what actually is happening there because some people say it's the dissolution of of the ego you're entering into another realm and i mean a lot of these things can be disregarded as woo woo and a bit hippie but some i think when you've had these experiences is it maybe leaves you open to that possibility i don't know if you share that share that um, idea i do very much that last statement of just being open to the possibility i think is the most profound and one that i think those of us still we're all we're all exploring what it is to live this life and why we're here and, and what it's about and being open to more possibilities is something that i think can be helpful with that exploration so mm. I'll, I'll touch on the neurology just briefly, and I'm by no yeah. means a scientist. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> to fact check anything. You're more of an expert than I am, put it that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> but from my understanding, the if we take psilocybin, for example, it's acting on the neural mm -hmm. highways in the brain. And so they call it, a, so, so it's actually acting on the neurotransmitter called serotonin. And this is why it often, well, if you take a, uh, an experience like a psilocybin journey, it's shutting down, in many cases, the default mode network. And the default mode network is what we associate with autobiographical information. Um, so things like our memories, uh, when we have events that we're referring to in the past or facts about ourselves. Um, 
otherwise called ego, right? And so for many of us, we live lives where we're in this kind of ego state. We've evolved over millennia to have an ego so that we can protect ourselves and survive. But that also leaves us thinking of ourselves with certain stories, having these recurring dialogues going on in our minds. Mm -hmm. And if that part of the brain function is reduced in activity, then as you said, it opens up space for a heightened sense of connectedness, which is why so many people talk about, you know, we are all one um, as this in, in after mystical experiences. And that's important because in that space, there is some research suggesting that we can essentially kind of get out of our own way, stop telling ourselves those negative recurring dialogues, and therefore put in place amazing positive changes in our life without the restrictions that we usually place on ourselves. Um, some people attribute that to neuroplasticity being enhanced when you're in a psychedelic experience. Um, and really what's happening is that also the, the, the brain's prefrontal cortex, which is the part that regulates abstract thinking, thought analysis, um, you know, plays a role in our mood and our perception that's being modulated as well. So um, there's sort of the limits of my understanding of how it works on the brain. There's a little more there, but I would recommend people look at some of the research coming out of Johns Hopkins University. Um, there is mm. a great page on the USONA Institute site. That's U-S-O-N-A. Um, they have a site with, or a page with um, all the research aggregated on psilocybin and, and some of the ways it works on the brain. Really encourage looking at that. And the Beckley Foundation is in the UK. They are a brilliant group run by Amanda Fielding. She's known as the Duchess of Psychedelics. And yeah, she's yeah. a we wonderful try, friend. Trying to get her on the podcast. She's like on the list. If we can get her on, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I'll share this episode with her after. Oh, thank oh, you. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, Dave, I, I wanted to ask, so the meaning of psychedelic refers to like the revealing of the mind or soul. I wanted to ask, do you believe that we have a soul? And do you think that if people, they themselves and others around them had a soul, would they treat each other and themselves differently? What a beautiful question. I think a lot of people are in this psychedelic space to try and answer that very question, actually. And this is the way I see it. So putting psychedelics aside for a moment, I think we're each extremely powerful and brilliant, more than any of us can know about ourselves. And if, we be if somebody believes they have a soul, and the definition of soul for that person in some way emanates grace and kindness into the world, then that person's actions are going to become more graceful and more kind. Mm. And so I think that the answer is yes, because of what we just explored earlier, that psychedelics do help to reduce those limiting beliefs, expand the options and the possibilities. And in, in, in that space, there's a very beautiful opportunity for people to consider themselves as somebody that has a soul and therefore is graceful, is kind, and can operate that way in the world as a light. And so that's that's perhaps my spiritual understanding. Um, I don't know that the medical understanding of the soul even matters around that. So I'll leave it there. Yeah. Thanks, David. And can I just ask from like a personal point of view, how have you changed uh, your interactions with people and your view of yourself since taking psychedelics and since embarking on this, this journey? Yeah. Well, we all grow up with a set of expectations that we're going to have school and we have to pass grades and exams. And then we have the social sort of obstacles and challenges. And then we have, um, the next step, whether it's uni or something else, and then a job. And, and there's this path that's laid out in front of us that I think most people subscribe to. Some people decide not to subscribe to that path. Um, and still, there's a set of societal belief systems that we all operate within. Now, I think those are really powerful and necessary for us to function as a society. I also think that for many people, psychedelics have helped us to question which areas of that societal agreement reality we believe in and we want to subscribe to and we want to continue to adhere to and which ones we don't and please don't <laughs> don't mistake that for me saying everyone should break the law by any means i'm not saying <laughs> no. that but but you know um steve jobs has that famous quote that he gave at the commencement speech where he mm. talks about 
we all live in this sort of big balloon, I think he said. And, and you know, once we realize that we can actually push on the sides of the balloon and, and expand it, expand that bubble and make it a bigger space or a more interestingly shaped space to live in, then we will live more interesting lives and probably accelerate the connectedness of humankind, can accelerate the amount of beauty and, and creation and compassion that there is in this world and start to heal our society from all of the um, the illnesses that have been a result of, of some major ingrained societal issues that just have been remnants, honestly, from a patriarchal historical paradigm that may not be the, the, the best to serve our modern culture, our technologically globalized culture. Lovely, lovely. Thanks, David. I also wanted to ask, um, because I'm interested to know when you have these experiences, of course, it's really hard to, of course, you can measure it to some extent and you're involved heavily in, in the research area of this. But I wanted to know, do you maybe think we place too much emphasis on what can be proven, particularly with regards to psychedelics? <laughs> so I do think that. And I believe that in this space, it's necessary for us to go about proving um, because there are so many opinions and so many incorrect statements and, 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 and you know, people across the world of all types have their own motives for thinking about psychedelics one way or another, whether it's the motive of being told by their father that drugs are bad or the motive of making money as a pharmaceutical uh, director. You know, there, there's a whole range there. And so because there's such a disparate and dislocated set of motives, we need to look at some kind of source of truth to really understand uh, whether psychedelics can be used safely at scale for mental health care and for other reasons. And so I believe that the, the research is necessary. I do think that there are different ways of thinking about research, though. A lot of the emphasis right now is on the clinical studies and um, very highly controlled environments where participants are brought into a university or a lab to look at the, um, the outcomes of their psychedelic journey. I think that there's a lot that data science will allow us to learn from the world. And that's where all of my work is seated. Um, we started the nonprofit Unlimited Sciences to research how people are using these psych psychedelic compounds across the world. So our first study with Johns Hopkins is on psilocybin. And that's a study that anyone can listen to, anyone uh, or uh, any of your listeners can participate in going to unlimitedsciences.org and signing up that will launch in the next month or so. And it will be thousands of people across the world logging their um, their lifestyle, their life quality, their beliefs, and then the experience that they have with psilocybin, like I mentioned earlier, people they're with, the dosage, the place they're at, that kind of thing. And then again, mm -hmm. after the experience, logging again, how's their life, how's their belief systems and so forth. And um, that's for people to take if they're going to be in the woods with friends or, you know, in a, in a, at home with a family member. And so I welcome anyone to participate in the science by, by joining that study. There's no cost, obviously. And then with our, um, our technology company, we are designing this software platform called Maya for psychedelic therapists and ceremony leaders to start to measure some of these things themselves. And so it can be implemented very easily into their workflows so that a psychedelic therapist who's maybe administering ketamine in the US can start to use Maya to measure the, we call psychometric baselines and outcomes. So psychometric is kind of how somebody thinks. Um, there's also neuropsychiatric, which is around their potential me mental health condition um, and, and generally their mental health state. And measuring those things before and then measuring them again after the psychedelic journey, any therapist or ceremony leader around the world can start to understand the data for themselves and really be empowered to use that data to offer better services, obviously, to make sure that people are left better than when they arrived and, and, and given a safe experience with more transparency and trust. So I believe in the science, I believe in measuring and the metrics. And I think that with the power that data science and machine learning offers us now, we're in an unparalleled time to really understand the complexities of human consciousness and especially with the psychedelics in the equation.
David, fascinating. I just wanted to clear up one thing. Um, with the research we said people can log on, that is completely anonymous. Yeah, people are probably listening thinking, I'm not going to criminalize myself. That is completely anonymous and they're not going to get, you know, the police come around the houses three minutes after they sign up, correct? Absolutely. Yep, we've obviously gone <laughs> yeah. to extreme measures to protect protect privacy and, and that goes for our tech platform as well. People can be using the platform without any phone number or email or any personally identifiable information it being logged so that people feel completely safe, fully encrypted, HIPAA compliant, secure. Um, you know, that's that's number one for us at all times, both from yeah. the uh, technology cybersecurity standpoint and making sure that we have the um, the lawyers on our uh, team to understand that we are not putting people at risk unnecessarily. Perfect. Well, guys, anyone who's listening now knows that their um, their trips at university festivals and so on is now actually counted as research. So that hopefully you'll get a big surge in numbers there. Um, <laughs> David, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, you're, you obviously spearheaded kind of the, the movement for the decriminalization of psilocybin in Denver. Uh, how close do you think we are to legalization or maybe I should say decriminalization and I know you're working in the States, so I'll, I'll kind of limit it to states, uh, to the States uh, for now. But how close do you think with, we are or are we a way off? As, you know, are we talking 10, 20 years? It's nuanced. It's really nuanced. So, yeah, uh, decriminalizing psilocybin here in Denver was totally <laughs> total shock result. I think none of us, there was an eight-person <laughs> team more or less with a bunch of volunteers and we just had a short period of time, huge credit to Kevin Matthews for leading that team and, and to success. And as a result of that, I, I think that what we did in Denver seems to be a domino that is causing other mm. dominoes to fall. There's already been Oakland, um, there's talks in Berkeley, and then the, uh, the statewide initiative in Oregon that will be the first kind of legalization initiative if that passes, but it's looking fairly promising last I heard. And so statewide in Oregon, having the ability for a therapist or any individual really to offer a psilocybin experience to a client legally is going to be an interesting shift in the paradigm. And there are there's a group called decriminalize nature, which is really interesting because they're not specifying just mushrooms or one other drug. They're saying, look, if any psychoactive compound grows in the ground or comes from an animal, then mm -hmm. who, are, who is the government to say we shouldn't be consuming that? And so um, they're saying, let's decriminalize all plant-based or naturally occurring entheogens. And they have chapters in many states. I forget how many, but it's shocking how quickly they've grown across America which is really exciting. Um, right now, yeah. uh, psilocybin is legal only in, I think it's four countries. Let's see, we've got Netherlands, Brazil, um, if I remember, there's uh, obviously Jamaica, and then Samoa, I think. And so there's, uh, <laughs> there's a precedent. And as far yeah. as I've heard, there haven't been any you know, dramatically higher instances of death or road rage or anything caused by that legal status in those places. So it's going to be interesting to look at those places like as a case study. Um, Portugal is obviously a very famous case study with decriminalization being or uh, defelonization na nationally. And one thing yeah. that most people might actually most people missed in the news is that all of Colorado just defelonized, meaning that it's no longer a felony to be in possession of, I think, up to four grams of something like cocaine or MDMA. Um, oh, wow. And now, yeah, which is kind of huge news and definitely, again, pushing the the um, more conservative states to have a case study that they can reference rather than just what's always been done in the last couple of decades. Now we're looking at real world scenarios where legalization, decriminalization is coming about. And we're going to see if that causes negative impacts or not. And so a um, few other things, ketamine is legal across the US. Uh, MDMA is in phase three trials uh, with for PTSD. And that will lead probably that's estimated in the next three or so years, optimistically, for MDMA therapy to begin uh, legally across the states. And, you know, you mentioned LSD. It's worth me saying that while LSD and psilocybin are discussed as having similar actions on the brain, the, uh, there are two, I think, two 
concerns around LSD. One is that it's called acid and that still has a very strong negative yeah. connotation, um, especially yeah. with the stories of Timothy Leary and the idea that it's just you know, eroding the brain and that kind of thing. So LSD has not been revived as quickly as, LS as psilocybin. The other problem is that it takes in quite a lot longer for the experience to happen. And so you need to have two researchers in a room with a person for eight hours instead of say four or five hours. And that means mm. um, you, they actually have to make it 12 hours to be on the safe side. And that means an overnight right. stay. So then the costs for doing the research become very expensive. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's something that probably most people, me, myself included, probably had no, no idea about really. I definitely didn't think about it. Um, you mentioned kind of very briefly there that you know people there's that movement of anything that's kind of natural i.e that comes from the ground or even off an animal some people might be thinking what are you talking about but there's that the famous toad um which some people you know they extract the venom from that and um you smoke it or or you know ingest it in some way shape or form and get high off that someone to someone who's listening to this and who is may, this is maybe kind of opening Pandora's box and they've never really considered it. What would you say uh, they should do in terms of taking it in stages? You know, because I know that you've got psilocybin, you've got stronger ones, you know, you go to Amsterdam in Europe, for example, and take magic mushrooms legally, but then there's the toad, you could go to Peru and do ayahuasca trips. You know, what's the courses that someone who's interested in this should take, starting with, you know, the baby steps, for example? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, firstly, I don't recommend setting fire to a toad and trying to smoke it. <laughs> you won't get very far there. <laughs> but uh, but you're right. The uh, 5-MeO-DMT, like I said, the strongest psychedelic experience that we know of comes from the venom of a specific mm. species of toad. It's called a Sonoran desert toad. And that was only discovered around, I believe it was around 100 years ago or less than a century. And And so there isn't a cultural... Stake, uh, a cultural, I should say, um, background foundation for the way that people are using that particular drug, whereas something uh -huh. like ayahuasca, which has been in South and Central American cultures for millennia and millennia, yeah. and um, there's so much knowledge. And I, I, I do like the rule of thumb that if something's been around for centuries and used in a cultural way, like with various Peruvian tribes, then they will have filtered out so many of the bad practices that could be harmful through the generations. And so it can be fairly safe to go and experience that drug in accordance with their rituals and ceremonial approach and that kind of thing. Obviously, making sure that you're, you're selecting the safe actors, it's really sad. But just like anything, as this space grows and becomes more popular, there are people that are, are um, pretending to be shamans or or but even in some case believe that they are shamans and and they just don't have the personal experience or skill set to be able to administer a safe experience so really recommend finding a place to go through this experience if you choose to that's with research and ideally um other friends of yours or people that you trust having recommended having gone through the experience themselves um and uh, one thing I'll, I'll drop in, there's so much to say on this topic. One thing I'll drop in is that yeah, of even course. if you were to hypothetically fly to Peru from wherever you are and go through, and it's a lot of cost and time and money and, and it's a psychological load to go into that experience. If you get there and that morning they're about to you know commence the ceremony and it just doesn't feel right, that's okay. It's okay. There's no rush around this experience. It's absolutely a sacred thing that um, I would, I would say your intuition will know if if you're ready for and if you're in the right place for it, and your intuition will know as well if that's just sort of the the jitterbug and, and maybe you know like it's natural to feel nervous before it, but at the same time be able to trust your instinct as to whether that's just nerves or whether you're picking up on something that's not quite right and it's just maybe not the right time for you as an individual, no matter who you're with or what people say. Um, I waited for about three years since I learned from the time when I learned about ayahuasca and was really excited to do it, I was given good advice by a guide that I'll know when my time comes, I'll know when I have the signal that it's it's my time to go through that experience. And I waited for three years. And then when I did do it, it was absolutely profound and the right time for me 
So uh -huh. I, I just want to pass forward that mindset um, in terms of finding the right guides or more importantly, even sort of selecting the right experience. There are starting to be some really good resources and and wasn't planning to really talk about this, but we are launching with Maya a mm -hmm. system to allow people like your audience to go on our website and then um, connect with a guide or, or a, a therapist or a licensed social worker or somebody that has qualifications to be talking about these topics and they can help really hear your individual scenario and, and kind of expose some resources and, and help you understand where to start. And for some people, that means going very, um, let's say, very deep, very quickly. I'm not recommending a high dose very quickly necessarily. I think even for some of the stronger psychedelics, start slow. If it's ketamine, start slow. Like I, I've, I really recommend with ketamine, especially which is in the party culture. Um, yeah. Start with you know just a little bit, a fraction of what your friends even think you should take, and and see how it feels. Your body will will get a sense for it, and your mind in ways that you can't imagine, and and then. You know, you can always um, increase gradually. And uh, let me caveat again, I'm not recommending anyone take any drugs and I'm not suggesting that it's a good thing to take drugs for any individual. But in the context where people are choosing to experiment themselves, mm -hmm. I think these are some some good approaches. Yeah, I mean, I had some um, some kind of wayward experiences with ketamine that I thought, nah, I'm not going to, I tried it twice and I was like, nah, I don't enjoy this. So I kind of left it there. Um, to, to pick up on something, you mentioned ayahuasca. I did a, a trip around South America uh, when I was 19, so not, so about four years ago now. Um, and it, we were debating, my friends and I, whether we should do an ayahuasca trip. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And in the end, we decided not to. Like you said, we just didn't feel like we were kind of ready for that um, intensity, the way it had been kind of t sold to us in the hostels when we'd been staying around um, Peru. Um, but I've done a bit more research on it since, and there's been a, a lot of people kind of um, say that they've experienced very similar trips. Uh, some say that they kind of see see themselves through like the eyes of a leopard which sounds okay well he's just off he's just off his head he that's but then actually when you delve in deeper to it there's uh, sightings and kind of research shows that leopards eat this special plant which i forget the name of now but that and you can there's videos on, even on youtube you can watch that you can see these leopards are tripping out and they say that it's kind of like uh, a union of conscience and so maybe the what the leopard is seeing is potentially you know if the humans version of of the world and you're kind of delving into the leopards version of the world did you experience anything like that um and do you think talking about kind of the consciousness maybe of, of of animals do you think that there's any kind of possibility that we could actually prove the existence of a collective consciousness um in some sort of future oh i think we're doing that already <laughs> yeah uh yeah i i Look, look how the world is coming together around this COVID topic. And there are so many ways that technology interconnectedness being always on, on, on devices and that kind of thing are damaging to many. But there's a beautiful symbol right here now this month of the world coming together and, and having a collective consciousness to put aside differences in many cases and, and focus on healing, you know, re-enabling this worldwide community. And so even psycho-spiritual matters aside, it's great to see that that's happening in our culture. And mm -hmm. I think the opportunity for, uh, you know, we talked at the beginning a little bit about, about some of the um, ways in which uh, psych psychoactive like psilocybin can slow down or reduce the activity in parts of the brain that can open us up to a sense of connectedness. That's a very common experience that people are reporting coming out of a psychedelic experience. And, and I see this firsthand with veterans, um, Navy SEALs, for example, yeah. that have been trained of, you know, years and years and years of just being ingrained with this idea of enemy and battle and fear and risk and, and fighting. And that leaves people with a lot of psychological scars that it's really beautiful to see drugs like ibogaine and psilocybin mdma and others helping those people come through those and start to feel connected again even to the extent that you'll see a palestinian connect with an israeli after growing up mm -hmm. for several decades you know just 
taught to hate each other and then they can come together and connect over the psychedelic experience. MAPS is actually doing some interesting work in Israel now that it will be announced soon. And, and I'm very excited to see what that shows for all of us. But um, I, yeah, I believe, uh, I do believe that the connectedness is, is available. I don't believe that that necessitates psycho-spiritual ideologies of any specific type. I think it's totally important and beautiful that people coming out of a Peruvian experience might assimilate with the, did you say leopard or jaguar? I've heard both. Uh, uh, yeah, both. I mean, either yeah. or. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then somebody in, um, in Gabon taking Iboga is going to have a different set of ideologies to somebody who's taking psilocybin in the Netherlands and coming from mm. a Christian background or, or whatever an individual's circumstance might be. There is a lot of cultural appropriation I've noticed. You know, we talked about 5-MeO-DMT being a fairly recent discovery, and yet there are shamans going about offering 5-MeO with the um, co-opted cultural ceremony of ayahuasca from Peru. You know, nothing wrong with that if it works for everybody involved, but also important to know that there it's an easy way to put on a front of being this really sort of enlightened spiritual shaman when actually you're just borrowing something from a completely different culture than than the topic at yeah. hand and you know some of those things i think are important for us all to keep an eye open to um and you know with regards to uh the the hallucinations the visions that people see there's some great reading to be done i, I read a book called cosmic serpent it's a short book super recommended to anyone here who's interested in the topic by jeremy narby perfect he, he's amazing um short book read that and then if you're if you're on the train and, and enjoying that topic, there's a book called Supernatural by Graham Hancock, which goes yes, into yes. yeah, you know uh, the, yeah, yeah, so, I'm aware, yeah, big fan. I mean, he he talks about many topics, but the the bit that stuck with me from that around how it, somebody actually describing the and this is not with psychedelics necessarily, but just somebody in America who describes an, a UFO sighting or being abducted. Um, if you break it down to the core fundamentals of what they're saying, it's actually not that different than the logs of somebody who recorded um, seeing fairies in the say 1700s in England, and right. that it's possible that these people are. He talks about how about seven percent of humans are wired to organically jump into a um, mystical state or an altered state of consciousness. And that might explain why some of these visions are happening. And then depending on your cultural context, if you're in England in the 1700s, you think of that as fairies. And if you're in America in the 2000s, you think of that as UFOs, but actually you're thinking of the same thing or maybe witnessing the same thing. Right. It's fascinating. There, there's also a movie called Embrace the Serpent, which I'd really recommend if anyone's interested in mm. this Amazonian um, culture surrounding uh, ceremony and ayahuasca. David, I just wanted to ask you, have psychedelics and or your time uh, within the ayahuasca ceremony, has it changed your view of death? My view of death was changed long before psychedelics entered the scene. When I was 18, my mother passed away. I was extremely, extremely close to her. We, uh, we were just you know, tied at the hip. And, and because my father and she were not together from the age of eight, for me, I was kind of her partner as well. And so it was interesting that growing up, I thought of my mother's death as the one thing that couldn't happen, right? I could probably handle anything else that was difficult, but if my mom died, that would be insurmountable. And then when that happened, I was in this sort of coming of age, post high school gap year, just about to enter uni phase of my life. And so it was a grow up fast moment and recognizing that I could continue to live without her and that I could... Um, I could be strong and and uh, and take on the lessons that she had taught me and done such a beautiful job of parenting and bring those into my adulthood. And then now I'm preparing to be a father. A lot of this is relevant to me because I'm starting to think about how I can take on her lessons as well as my father's and, and bring those to the um, beautiful little daughter that I'm about to welcome. And so that was a bit of of a, a sidebar, but my attitude towards death became very accepting from that moment on. It seemed to me that if I could 
um, process her dying, then I could process anyone dying. So as much as I have compassion and sadness for other family members or friends of people that pass away, my personal experience doesn't usually involve sadness. It's more of a contemplation on all the things that that person did in their life, what they left behind, what their um, their ripple of impact might have been, and focusing on that rather than sadness. If anything, psychedelics have helped sort of reinforce that and, and helped me maintain a sense of openness with regards to to death. Um, I mean, thanks for sharing that with us, David. That was really um, really insightful. Uh, you you spoke about. Um... Sorry, I've got one. My last one question is that kind of links into death slightly is are dreams, psychedelic trips, and you know, the thing where people die and they say, My life flashed before my eyes. Um, are they linked at all? Because this shows that you know, the DMT we do produce it, very, very small quantities, but it is produced in the body. Are they linked at all, or is that completely, um, is there no science behind that? You never know. I think it's possible. Mm. Um, they say that DMT is secreted when we are born and when we die, or if we have a near-death experience. Um, they also say that dreams don't mean anything. And then they also say that dreams are the entire manifestation of our conscious awareness of reality and that the ana mm. analysis of dreams can tell a professional so much about everything that's going on in our psyche. And so uh, I think we would have to do further psych psychological research into dream states before starting to make connections between those and psychedelic states. Uh, there is some really interesting research kicking up now by a friend, Adam Gazeli, over in San Francisco, who works with UCSF and has a lab that he built himself called Neuroscape. And he's going to be doing some super cutting edge research into how the mind is processing information within a psychedelic journey um, using sensors and using super high-tech uh, technology. I, I'm really excited to see what he might come up with. And I know there are several other groups that are chipping away at that puzzle. Perfect. I mean, well, we'll leave it there, um, uh, David, for now, because I know that you've got to go. Just one quick thing that we always just tie up, type the podcast with. Um, we end it with how do you keep your shit together, which is I think you might have some innovative ways on how you keep on top of your your mental health. But we'd just be interested in to know how you do that and maybe see if anyone else can kind of uh, copy your methods. Mm, great. Yeah. Copy away if anything's valuable. So microdosing I've already talked about, so I won't cover that again. I am quite a schedule routine oriented person. So I have my schedule, not only for like weekdays versus weekends, but also each weekday has a different schedule. And that involves things like, well, first I wake up at 5.30 every day. I work, uh, I take half an hour to kind of get tea and, and bring tea to my fiance and, and just have a moment to wake up. Then I work for a couple of hours then meditate. And then we, and we meditate together. And then I do yoga or a workout. And then um, my fiance and I shower together every day. Highly recommended. It's a great way to start the day and create connectedness in a relationship. And mm -hmm. then um, going into the workday, I've started a new routine in the last few months that's very valuable of having my email scheduled to roughly 9 a.m. for an hour, uh, for half an hour, and then 5 p.m. for an hour. And outside of that, I rarely check emails. And so I'm able to just compartmentalize, get super focused, answer everything in order. I use a tool called Superhuman, which is amazing for email, way better than Gmail or any default client, uh, highly, highly recommended. And so that keeps, I think one of the biggest distractions for a lot of us is is email. The other is social media, which I'm not really on a lot. Mm. I, um, I do irregular posts and then I really have trained myself out of caring who liked or commented on my post so that I'm not just there picking up my you know my app every yeah. five minutes to get that dopamine release. And there's also an importance of, you know, we, a lot of biohacking, neurohacking commentary is around how to get the most out of the workday. And I think that all that's great. We can also get a lot more out of our work by understanding the holistic elements which involve our relationships, our personal life, um, the way that we're going about cultivating joy in life and you know creating creating an environment of support um, I would say there are a few things like if you have somebody in your life that is causing 
a challenge or just on the mind, oh, you know, every time you think of them, it's just a bit of a drag on energy. Deal with that. So um, Landmark is a really excellent center of trainings to go through kind of understanding how we can create better connectedness and and, um, relatively understand philosophy uh, in an applied contemporary life. And Landmark's just one of many kind of methods of approaching difficult topics like having a very challenging relationship with a parent or something like that and getting that out of the way, you know, processing it, being powerful, being in good communication. And I've found personally that over the eight or so years, I've done four different um, landmark courses, you know, various other things with meditation, psychedelics, uh, retreats and, and practices. And often it comes down to getting things out of the way, not adding things, right? We all have these belief systems that are entrenched in in culture that are not serving us. And so looking at those and getting them off the plate, clear channel, able to operate in a way that's really clean, honest. Oh, this is my biggest one. How do I keep saying? Mm-hmm. I never tell lies. I never, never, mm-hmm. never tell a mistruth. So if I'm driving somewhere and I'm eight minutes away on the GPS, I don't say I'm five minutes away. You know, I'll say I'm eight. Mm-hmm. And um, even down to the smallest level, it's it's hard. I remember about two or three yeah. years ago when I made that decision to switch it was super hard. And I realized just how often we lie without even really meaning to. But once you do stop, once I stopped lying, I started recognizing all the other lies that people were saying. And that becomes a bit of a superpower because then you can uh-huh. um, you can act in a way that you know will be true to what the person meant as opposed to what they said. That's beautiful, David. And I just wanted to say, I'm so happy you said holistic because Seb jokes, it's like me, it's my favorite word in the English dictionary. <laughs> we need to look at this holistically. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, uh, David, thank you so much for your time. Um, like, like always like the whole podcast that segment is, was just as fascinating as, as the rest of it so guys um i hope you you've enjoyed this podcast we definitely have david just just want to repeat where people can um kind of log in their psychedelic experiences to help with your research should they want to do so uh, and we'll obviously put it in our show notes as well but just if someone's listening now and they want to kind of search it up where could they find that please go to unlimitedsciences.org and you'll see everything about our nonprofit there yeah thank you for asking perfect well that we'll put that in the show notes guys and we'll put all the other links where you can find david and the fascinating research that he's doing um now which is at the forefront of of psychedelic therapy um and thank you so much for your time we really really appreciate it um been truly fascinating thank you so much enjoyed it very much thank you thank you all the best 